Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. Today's topic is, what is net neutrality and why doesn't it matter? We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. With our IPI Policy Basics podcast, we are building an audio library of podcasts on basic policy concepts and topics for those who want to learn and understand how to think about policy or who need to get up to speed on a particular issue. And so today I'm going to talk about net neutrality, and I'm also joined in the studio today by our resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews, who I'm sure will share his thoughts and questions as well. So today's topic is what is net neutrality and why doesn't it matter? And Tom, this was a big issue a while back. I mean, it was taking a lot of bandwidth as people were discussing it, but I don't hear much about it anymore. Well, it's been a big topic for probably like 12 years. And the reason we haven't heard much about it in the last couple of years has basically been because of something I'm going to talk about in a few minutes, which is that the Republican-led FCC basically did away with it. But now that we've had a change in administrations, and now that Joe Biden is president and he will appoint a Democrat to head the FCC, it'll probably come roaring back in some form. So it's a very good time, I think, for us to be talking about just what is net neutrality? Mm -hmm. What does it mean? And as I say in my title, why doesn't it matter? So I've done any number of talk radio interviews over the years on net neutrality. And one of the first questions is always, what is net neutrality? What does it mean? And the reason that's a complicated answer is that the meaning of net neutrality has changed over time. It is, it has had three or four different definitions depending on when you would ask the question. But the most important thing to understand about net neutrality is that that is an incomplete phrase. The complete phrase is net neutrality regulation. Any discussion of net neutrality is always about whether or not the federal government should impose additional regulation on the Internet. It always means federal regulation of Internet providers. And the whole campaign for net neutrality has always been driven by those who do not trust the private ownership of networks and by those who have a misunderstanding or a distrust of how capitalism works and how free markets work. It's been driven by those who assume that businesses make money by abusing their customers rather than an understanding of the fact that businesses make money by pleasing their customers rather than abusing them. And, and it's interesting because you're saying by those And if I remember right, this sort of, it spanned ideological lines. I mean, normally we think if you're talking about corporate income tax rate cut, conservatives tend to be for it, uh, liberals, Democrats tend to be against it. Uh, But on something like this, you had people on, you had different conservatives and and Republicans on both sides, as well as Democrats to some extent, didn't you? Yeah, it, it, it wasn't a completely partisan issue. It was The divide was really not between Republican and Democrat. The divide really was between those who, as I said earlier, sort of trust capitalism and trust free enterprise as opposed to those who are skeptical about it. To, to understand net neutrality, though, we have to first sort of back up and understand a couple of really basic concepts, one of which is what is the Internet? 
what what it, when we say the internet, what are we actually talking about? And it's surprising how many people don't understand this. They think of the internet, well, the internet is Facebook or the internet is Amazon or something like that. But what the internet is at its core is a network of networks. There are many, many, many separate networks that are owned by companies or by universities or by governments. And these networks have all agreed to exchange traffic freely with each other. So you have networks that are owned by Comcast and networks that are owned by AT&T and networks that are owned by level three and networks that are owned by the city of Pasadena, California and networks that are owned by the university of Colorado. These are all separate networks that were built and are owned by private ownership, but they've agreed to interchange traffic with each other. So the internet is not one thing. The internet is a network of networks. It's many, many different networks that are all interconnected and that exchange traffic. So all of those networks that I just described were built by someone. The university of Colorado built their network. The city of Pasadena, California built their network. Comcast built their network. Suddenlink or CenturyLink or Frontier built their network. And these networks are all owned by their owners, whether the owner is a private for-profit company or whether the owner is a government or whether the owner is a nonprofit institution like a university or something like that. So the internet is a network of networks and all of these networks were built by someone and they are owned by someone. The internet was not built by the federal government. It's not owned by the federal government. It's not controlled by the federal government. So the very structure and design of the internet is actually a tribute to the free market principle of self-organization that the owners of all of these networks very early on recognize that more value would be added to their network. If they agreed to connect their network to other networks voluntarily and to exchange that traffic. So is this like different cities connected to each other? They may build roads within that city. Another city builds its own roads, but I get to drive on the other city's roads. Those other people in other cities get to drive on mine. So we're able to cross. There's no real, there's no real barrier to us doing that. We just drive on one and it's freely open. That's not a bad illustration because there's no, like when you cross over from the County road to the city road, or when you cross over from the Alabama highway to the Mississippi highway, there's no toll booth set up, right? You don't have to pay a fee when you make that crossing because they've all decided, yes, we will let traffic flow freely from one to the other. So that's actually not a bad illustration. And that is how the net, how the internet works. And the way all of this traffic all interchanges is that all of these networks agreed on a particular standard called the IP protocol, the internet protocol. And so your email, your music, your videos, uh, whatever you do online, your, your web browsing, whatever you do, all of that traffic is all encoded with this common IP protocol so that it can pass from network to network to network without running into problems. Now you really do have to fundamentally understand that the internet is a collection of networks that are owned by people to understand this issue of what level of regulation is appropriate because 
again, the government didn't build those networks. The government does not own and control those networks. They're privately built. They're privately maintained. They're privately owned. Now, as our listeners, I assume, understand, there's a conflict of visions when it comes to economic policy. There are some people who are very pro-free market and private property and capitalism, and there are some people out there that don't trust the free market. They don't trust capitalism. They don't like the idea of private ownership. Uh, you know, you might describe this this divide as the divide between capitalists and and Marxist or communist or the divide between capitalists and socialists. But for those of us who are on the free market capitalist side of that divide, we see private ownership as a feature, not a bug. We see the private, we see the, the profit motive as a feature, not a bug. If a network is privately owned, if it generates profits for its owner, then they have an incentive to maintain it, to upgrade it, to expand it, to always make it better, to make sure that their profit-making asset continues to make a profit. And that's part of the genius of the profit motive, that it encourages owners to maintain and expand and upgrade their property. But there are folks out there who are, who are really very unhappy with the idea that the Internet is largely privately owned. They don't trust corporations. They don't trust the profit motive. They don't trust free enterprise. And they really think government ought to be in charge of the Internet rather than these private owners of these networks. So as I said, if you believe in markets and, and private property, then the private ownership of these networks is a feature. But if you don't believe in that, if, you, if, you're, if you're more of a socialist or a, uh, I mean, to use an inflammatory word, more of a communist idea, and that is you think government ought to control the means of production rather than the private sector, then you're very troubled by the fact that companies like Comcast and AT&T and CenturyLink would actually own portions of the Internet. But do I recall correctly that groups like the Christian Coalition and I think the Eagle Forum were generally supported net neutrality, and they certainly generally support uh, free markets and things of that nature as a general principle. You're right that some of those groups did actually get involved several years ago in the net neutrality campaign, and we can speculate as to why that was. We can speculate that it may have been because they were given money to do so, or we can speculate that they really didn't understand what some of the core issues involved were. And when I talk about the fact that some groups were given money to actually promote net neutrality, that takes us to a, a really important point, which is that who was driving this demand for regulation? And so to ask, to answer that question, we have to go be and talk about another basic internet concept. We've talked about the fact that the internet is a network of networks, but the other thing to understand is the difference between what we call edge providers and what we call the core network. So if you think about companies like Facebook, Amazon, Twitter, Etsy, Yelp, those are the primary ways that most internet users actually interface with the internet. But those are what we call edge providers. They're not core network companies. They don't actually provide access to the Internet. They provide services over the Internet. Your, your core Internet providers are the companies that literally provide access to the Internet. And these are companies like Level 3, Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, Charter, Frontier, companies like that, that you actually get your Internet access from. 
And several years ago, a lot of these edge companies began to become very uncomfortable when they recognized that they were dependent on these internet providers. Uh, Facebook, Google, YouTube, these are very profitable edge companies, but you can't get to them unless you go through an internet provider Mm -hmm. like Comcast or AT&T. So these companies, they can't access their, their, their access to their customers and their customers access to them is dependent on these internet providers. So a a company like Google or uh, Facebook, I go through an internet service provider like Spectrum or AT&T in order to get to them. And they wouldn't have a network I'm guessing if there wasn't the internet service provider providing this core Access. That's that exactly correct? right. And so if for some reason the core internet access providers were to decide to suddenly stop providing access to Facebook, Facebook would have a big problem. So a lot of these edge providers uh, a number of years ago began to realize how sort of, in their view, how dependent they were on these internet providers. And so they decided they wanted federal regulation. And so the real drivers of net neutrality were these edge provider companies who said, you know what, we are absolutely dependent on this infrastructure of internet providers, and we don't want them to be able to discriminate against us. We don't want them to to come back to us and say, we're going to charge you more because you're causing so much traffic. I should also mention when I talk about traffic, Netflix is a great example of an edge provider that's responsible for a huge amount of traffic over the internet but Netflix can't get to you and you can't get to Netflix without going through one of these internet providers. So their whole business model is dependent on these internet providers. So they decided it was in their best interest for the federal government to regulate these internet providers. And that's what really drove the whole net neutrality campaign for all these years. And you can understand from their standpoint that if you realize that, that, that you, you can be a highly profitable company, but there's one choke point that you have absolutely no control over. And you don't want them, as I said earlier, to be able to come back to you and say, nice little business you've got going here. Be ashamed if something happened to it. Because the internet providers had absolute control over that. Now, again, going back to this sort of uh, philosophy of whether or not we trust markets, be- because those of us, like, like those of us at IPI who believe in free markets, we believe that people in general in the economy profit from providing useful goods and services to each other. So there's no reason that an internet provider would, would suddenly decide, you know what, we're going to cut off all of our customers access to Facebook or to iTunes or something like that, because that would make their customers angry. So if you do like us believe in free markets and voluntary association and bottom up rather than top down economic activity, your total, your whole view toward net neutrality is this is not really going to be necessary, except maybe in the case of like a bad actor here and there. But we don't really need this huge overall regulation of the internet providers. And so that's why, in as a general rule, groups and people who believe in free markets and in low regulation and who are pro-innovation and capitalists have been skeptical about net neutrality regulation. Was the issue, though, not so much cutting them off, but charging them more? So take, for instance, Netflix, because people were downloading uh, or streaming videos, and that took up a lot of bandwidth. Mm-hmm. And my sense was that some of the companies said, you're, you're hogging all this bandwidth, and we can't let other things get through. 
So we may want to charge you a little more for doing that since we're the ones providing all this extra bandwidth. So let's talk about that. That's actually my next point. So the the definition of net neutrality has changed over time. So the first iteration of net neutrality was about what's called network management. And that is that the, the owners of these networks should not be allowed to prioritize traffic. They should not be allowed to manage traffic over their networks. Now, I actually wrote one of the very first op-eds on net neutrality 12 or 13 years ago, and it was literally on this topic. And when I, in my op-ed, I set up this scenario. I said, let's say that uh, an ambulance has just been dispatched to pick up your father who has just had a massive heart attack. And your father's in the ambulance, and he's on the way to the hospital, and the EMS technicians in the ambulance are trying to transmit his vitals back to the hospital. But it turns out, that this is also the same night as the Victoria's Secret fashion show back when they used to do those. And so people all over the world are streaming the Victoria's Secret fashion show over the internet. And at the same time, a big pop singer like Taylor Swift has just debuted her new album and made it available online. Now the question is what kind of traffic should have priority? should the EMS traffic from the ambulance back to the hospital have a higher level of priority than you downloading the latest Taylor Swift album? Now, any rational person would look at that and say, yes, of course, there's some traffic that should be a higher priority and there's some traffic that should be a lower priority. But the initial campaign for net neutrality was a campaign against network management. It was a demand that network owners not be allowed to manage the traffic, that all traffic be treated equally, that no traffic would be discriminated against. So for instance, if you were prioritizing traffic from first responders, and if you were deprioritizing traffic from downloading music or, or email or something like that, that would be viewed as discrimination. And that literally was the first iteration of net neutrality. And we at the Institute for Policy Innovation wrote papers on that, and we testified before committees and before hearings about why it ab absolutely networks had to be able to manage their traffic because of the tremendous scale at which traffic on the Internet was building up. And there's no such thing as infinite bandwidth. Every commodity is limited, including network bandwidth. And so the networks had to be able to manage their network. And so the, the, to make this clear, a company like Netflix, I, I'm going over my internet service provider to reach out to Netflix. Netflix essentially would pay nothing for that internet service provider because I'm, I'm paying the bills on that. So they could, if they, if a lot of people wanted to get movies and that was my understanding was mm -hmm. the issue where people, uh, all this stuff was going over there so people could get their movies, but some of the some of the more important or even just small bits of pieces were held up or slowed down because so many people were getting movies, which are which is important, yes. but may not be as important as some other information that needs to go over the internet. And that was that was essentially the second iteration of net neutrality. So the first iteration of net neutrality was this philosophical thing that all traffic has equal value and nothing should be blocked. And we pretty quickly got past that. We won that argument. People came to realize that, yes, of course, duh, networks have to manage their, their, their traffic on their networks. So then we got to this issue of tiers of service. And the idea would be, you know, if we don't have regulations on these ISPs, 
they're going to say, okay, well, the basic internet cost is this, but if you want access to Netflix, it's going to cost you extra, right? Or if you want net, if you want access to iTunes, it will cost you extra. And so there was a fear that a company like AT&T, for instance, would say, you know what? We're going to give you access to AT&T tunes for free. But if you want access to iTunes, we're going to charge you extra. Mm. We're going to give you access to AT&T video for free. But if you want access to Netflix, you're going to have to pay extra. So that was sort of the second iteration of net neutrality. And the idea was tiers of service. And that's not an unreasonable concern, I guess. I mean, you, you can. Companies do promote their own products at times. Well, th- this was a fear, again, that I think people who have a generally anti-corporate attitude were just sure this was going to happen. And again, for those of us who believe in innovation and who believe in free markets, we argued, no, that's, that's not going to happen because it's in the company's best interest to have as much traffic as possible over their networks and to have as many customers as possible. And again, we turned out to be right. You never saw internet service providers introduce tiers of service. It never happened. They continued to expand their bandwidth, to expand their capacity, and no one ever tried, for instance, to favor their own music service over iTunes. No one ever tried to favor their own video service over Netflix or Hulu or anything like that. It never happened. And the reason it never happened again is because the way businesses make money is by pleasing their customers, not by abusing their customers. So that was the second iteration of net neutrality. The third iteration of net neutrality was the idea of metered usage, that they were going to charge people more for using more bandwidth and less for using less bandwidth, and that somehow that was improper. Now, we argued at the time that there's nothing improper at all about charging heavier users more than light users. And in fact, that's how the market has shaped up today. Mm-hmm. Uh, most, most cable and, and phone companies and wireless companies, if you're an extremely heavy user, they charge you an additional fee again, which only makes sense. And that's really no different than going down to the post office and saying, I can mail this letter for 50 cents, or I can mail it priority. If I want to, if I want to pay more, for better service, I have the right to pay for it. And so that's really no different. So metered usage actually to a, to a small degree has actually become part of the standard internet package right now. Although only people who are just extremely heavy users, like people who are trying to like run a server in their house or something like that actually end up having to pay for that additional metered usage. So that's kind of how the whole net neutrality debate has evolved over the past decade. But net neutrality has always been about people who distrust the private ownership of internet networks wanting more and more federal regulation. So why do you think uh, Joe Biden coming in as president is going to revive this issue? Well, I want to talk first about what happened during the Obama administration because I think that's a preview. That's a way of answering your question mm. because Joe Biden, of course, was the vice president in the Obama administration. So if you will recall, the Democrats took a real hit in the 2014 election. They got right. their, they got their clocks clean. That was a midterm election. Barack Obama was president. And on November 10th, just a couple of days after the November 2014 election, president Obama gave a speech demanding net neutrality. It was all about net neutrality. And from a political standpoint, this was sort of trying to throw a bone toward Democrat supporters and trying to address one of their key issues. And after the 2014 election, President Obama realized he wasn't going to be able to get much done through legislation. So what could you do? Well, 
you had a Democrat in charge of the FCC. So that's something you could do. So Barack Obama instructed his FCC chairman named Tom Wheeler to implement net neutrality. Now, net neutrality has always been this set of principles like no discrimination, no metering, no blocking. Uh, at one point, the FCC under Michael Powell, a Republican, issued a set of four net neutrality principles. And the idea was these are the principles everyone ought to follow, but there was no force of law. There was mm -hmm. no regulation or requirement. So when President Obama gave the speech calling for net neutrality, everybody kind of assumed that's what the FCC would do. But in fact, what the FCC did under Tom Wheeler in the Obama administration was go much further than that. And they actually reclassified the internet. They reclassified broadband internet under what's called Title II of the Telecommunications Act. And this was a radical, radical move. Title II goes all the way back to 1934, and it was written to regulate the old Ma Bell AT&T monopoly. And so literally what happened under Obama is that this dynamic, innovative, broadband internet system was actually reclassified as if it was the old Ma Bell monopoly. Mm. And that subjected it to thousands and thousands of pages of federal regulation, which could have included price regulation and all kinds of things. So this was, again, from our standpoint, from a free market standpoint, this was a disaster. And groups like IPI predicted that this would be a disaster. We predicted that the companies would stop investing in their networks because if you're going to go from a lightly regulated commodity to a heavily regulated commodity, it's not going to be as profitable. And that's in fact what the data shows. The data showed that after 24, after 2015, when title II reclassification happened, that the company's investment in their own networks dramatically dropped. And they said, well, there's no point in us continuing to invest in these networks at the same mm. level we were investing in if we don't have the same level of control over them that we used to have. Now, the good news is, is that that heavy Title II regulation only lasted for 18 months because when Donald Trump won election in 2016, one of the first things he did was appoint Ajit Pai to be chairman of the FCC. And one of the first things that Ajit Pai did was quickly move to reverse this terrible regulatory mistake that the Obama administration made. And uh, Chairman Pai called it the Restoring Internet Freedom Order. It undid the Title II reclassification. It returned the Internet to the light-touch regulation that it's always had from the very beginning. And not only did investment increase almost immediately after that happened, but none of the sky-is-falling rhetoric from the net neutrality proponents came true. I mean, the net neutrality proponents for years had been saying that the internet had to be saved. It had to be rescued. We have to save the internet, that the internet was in dire danger unless we implemented net neutrality regulations. And when we removed the net neutrality regulations for that eight, that, it, that were only existence for that 18 months, none of the bad stuff happened. Mm -hmm. In fact, average internet speeds increased. The cost of access to internet dropped on average the prices dropped companies continue to expand their network so there are fewer and fewer people in the country today who do not have access to high-speed internet so all of the chicken little sky is falling rhetoric that was used to justify not only net neutrality but also title II reclassification all of it turned out to be false 
none of the bad stuff happened. So at this moment, as we record this podcast, broadband internet networks are very lightly regulated, just as they have always been from the beginning of the internet. And there was only a brief, unfortunate 18 months toward the end of the Obama administration where we had more heavy regulation of the internet. And this current regime, this light touch regulatory regime is in our view, of course, the proper regulatory environment for the internet. Since we see investment continuing, we see speeds increasing, we see innovation continuing and see, and we see none of the bad things that we were warned about actually happening. So will that change under Joe Biden? Well, that's the big question, isn't it? Because these things are always subject to political change and we've just had a political change. So uh, the Republican chairman of the FCC on January 20th is no longer in office and uh, President Joe Biden will appoint a new head of the FCC and that will give the FCC a three to two Democrat majority. Mm -hmm. And I fully expect, and I'd be shocked if it doesn't happen, that one of the first things they'll try to do is come back and implement some kind of net neutrality regulation, whether it's a return to the same Title II reclassification that happened under the Obama administration or whether it's something more modest, we don't know. We'll see. I mean, if the idea of the, of the Biden administration is just to undo everything that the Trump administration did, maybe mm-hmm. they'll try to go back to Title II. But the interesting thing, of course, is that the Biden administration likes to talk about how they're guided by the science mm-hmm. and they're guided by the data. Well, the data, we've just run this experiment, right? We saw innovation drop when broadband was reclassified under Title II. And we saw it increase again when we went back to light touch regulation. So the data is really clear. So if the, if the Biden administration is going to be guided by the science and the data, they will stick with a light touch approach toward internet networks rather than heavy regulatory approach. Is there a few couple of tweaks that they could come in and say, we're making these changes and now sort of say we fixed the problem and move on without actually making any fundamental changes. Because sometimes politicians want to say, I fixed the problem when they haven't done that much. You know, most of the Internet providers have already committed to some of the key net neutrality principles. Things like we will not block any legal content, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we, will not, we will not discriminate on traffic other than for network management purposes and things like that. So most of them have already sort of informally or formally committed to those principles. So yes, you could certainly find a, a way that, it, that a Biden FCC could say, we're implementing these, this small set of principles or regulations that is pretty much the way things are already being run right now. And they could claim a victory and it really wouldn't change much of anything that's going on on the internet. Here's what I think is, is particularly interesting at this moment. The entire, and we, I mentioned this earlier, the entire net neutrality debate focused on internet service providers. It focused on the core internet companies, again, like Comcast, AT&T, Verizon, Charter, Frontier, companies like that. Those are not the tech companies today that everybody's mad at. The tech companies today that everyone's mad at are the edge providers, right? It's Facebook for filtering and blocking Mm -hmm. Twitter for filtering and blocking Amazon for having too much market share, too much power in the market. It's the focus of the ire of the public is no longer on the core internet providers. It's more on these edge providers. It's the companies 
that they directly interact with rather than indirectly interacting with. And so all of the discussion about free speech online, all the discussion about Section 230, all the discussion about whether or not these companies have too big of market share and too much market power, that's not a net neutrality discussion. Those are the edge companies. Those are not the companies that actually provide access to the Internet. So the focus is off of these Internet service providers right now. But on the other hand, because net neutrality has been such an article of faith for Democrats for so long, it'll be interesting to see if they just reflexively move back toward imposing net neutrality or whether they are sort of distracted from doing that because of all of the attention that the edge companies are getting and because of all of the controversy that swirls around the edge providers rather than the companies at the core of the Internet. They've sort of had a honeymoon lately for the last couple of years, and they've not had as much attention on them. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. But I do want to sort of back up and summarize, and that is that if you're a believer in free markets, if you're a believer in letting willing buyers and willing sellers settle things in a free market economy, then your approach to regulation is that regulation should always be very light in order to allow for maximum flexibility and maximum innovation. And that regulation should only ever step in when there's been some sort of a demonstrated harm to consumers. And in the whole saga of net neutrality, what we see is an example of the opposite of that. We see a repeated call for regulation despite the fact that there was no evidence of harm to consumers. So from our standpoint, the entire net neutrality debate over the past 10 or 12 years has been, frankly, a distraction. It's been concern over a problem that can't be demonstrated. It's, it's a concern over a problem that really hasn't happened. Those of us who believe in free markets, we're not completely anti-regulation. We just think you hold off on regulation until there is some demonstrable harm to consumers, and then you address it in a very targeted way. You can find out a lot more about net neutrality and Internet policy at our website at IPI.org, because as I said, we've been speaking and writing and holding events on this topic for over a decade. If you've enjoyed this podcast, and I hope you have, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? Thank you for joining us. Dr. Matthews, thank you very much for joining me, and we will see you next time.